You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 183 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I will be talking to Dr. Anna Yusim. Anna completed her undergraduate education at Stanford University, where she studied biology and philosophy. She attended Yale Medical School and the NYU Residency Training Program in Psychiatry. And Dr. Anna Yusim has traveled, lived and worked in over 50 countries and presented at numerous national and international medical conferences. Dr. Yusim has published over 60 academic articles, book chapters, scientific abstracts and book reviews on various topics in psychiatry. And most recently she has published the book Fulfilled. How the science of spirituality can help you live a happier, more meaningful life. And in my opinion, that is why she is on the podcast. In my talk with Anna, we go over a bunch of topics like ADHD, Freud, gender, intuition. But mainly we discuss what is required to become truly happy. Or as... She describes it in her book, How to Become Fulfilled. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and and what you do? Sure. My name is Dr. Anna Yusum. I'm a psychiatrist. I work in a full-time private practice here in Manhattan. I'm also on clinical faculty at Yale Medical School. And I recently wrote a book about the intersection of psychiatry and spirituality. The title of the book is called Fulfill, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Before we get into that, I have a, a, a question regarding your profession in general. And uh, because in Europe, the culture where I am, uh, the culture is that usually something happens to you. So you go see a therapist or a psychologist for some reason. But in the United States, from what I understand, it's more like everybody goes to see one. (laughs) Yes, it actually reminds me of a young patient who came to see me once. And he was talking to me for 45 minutes after which I asked, you know... I'm a little confused as to why you came to see me. I'm getting a good sense of who you are, but what brings you here now? And he says to me, everybody needs a psychiatrist. (laughs) That was why he came to see me. So I think that that kind of captures exactly what you're pointing to. And yes, some people come with very distinct pain or a mental health disorder or, you know, a diagnosis that they need treatment for. But many people come to work on themselves and to have someone to talk to in order to move through life and grow, evolve and transform. But is the psychologist allowed to give advice or is it just that they're listening? Well, and that's also a very good question. So I, as a psychiatrist, I do numerous things. One is when medically indicated, I do prescribe psychiatric medication. So I have patients who come for medication, but that is only about a half of the patients I treat. The other half come to better understand themselves or really to have someone to speak with. And at the end of the day, it's the patient who has to learn how to be more autonomous and make their own decisions. So even though you can give advice to help people along the way, it's better not to give too much advice to enable people to become more self-sufficient and really harness their own power. What's the difference between uh, between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? What did you call it? Psychiatrist? Yes. Yeah, so a psychiatrist, me, um, is a medical doctor, an MD. So you go to medical school and then you do a medical residency. So the first year is neurology as well as a little bit of psychiatry and internal medicine. And the 
last three years of residency are psychiatry. And this is in contrast to a psychologist, which is a PhD, so it's a doctor of psychology, where they do a dissertation and a thesis as part of their training, and they don't prescribe medication. For the common person who uh, meets either of those two, it doesn't really matter for them. Yeah, exactly. So, and some people specifically want medications, they would go to a psychiatrist and somebody else might want a medical approach. They would go to a psychiatrist. But if you're looking for therapy, there are people who give good therapy who are psychiatrists or psychologists. Absolutely. So this book you, you written, what's your uh, view on what it is that really makes somebody happy, which is, you know, if you're fulfilled, you're happy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really what the book is about. And it's about the tenets of fulfillment. So the three tenets that through my work with over a thousand patients in the last 12 years that I've isolated are number one, authenticity. So striving to be who you really are, not who anybody else expects you to be and not who you are by virtue of obligation. So really tapping into your soul, connecting with the essence of your being and finding an expression for that essence in the world. So number one is authenticity. Number two is soul correction. So understanding what it is that your soul has come into this world to correct. And you can know what your soul correction is by asking the question, what is my greatest source of pain in life? What is it that keeps coming up again and again and again in my life, often much to my chagrin and dismay, and despite my best efforts to change it? And the answer to that question is your soul correction. Everybody has something, and for everybody, it's that thing which we've come into this life to really work through and overcome. And then the third part of fulfillment and happiness is connecting to part of something greater than oneself, which for some people could be God, the universe, Mother Nature, and for other people, it's a sense of a collective purpose or a shared global mission or being able to connect to art or music in a way that's very self-transcendent. So those are the three things, authenticity, soul correction, and connecting to part of something greater. The first uh, part, authenticity, I imagine many people uh, have a difficulty, maybe not trying to figure out who they are or trying to be something they're not, but more like just living uh, out of habit, you know, like... You can live a life for 10 years and not really think about what you did. You just like went from day to day and things happen and just, you know, the machine rolls on. Exactly, exactly. And so many people live like that. And it's a life of default pathways and habitual responses where we don't really stop to question and ask, am I really the person who, whose life I've living is this really my life or am I living somebody else's life and if I am living somebody else's life what choices do I need to make in my life to be more me to be able to express myself and share with the world my unique talents and abilities and interests in a way that nobody else but myself can do how would you know that you are the real you mm -hmm. yeah so usually when people start this process, what they feel is pain. They come from a space of pain. And as they examine the pain, sometimes the root of that pain is because they've been living a life out of sync with who they really are. They really haven't been being true to themselves. That was the case for my own life for many years. I you know, was doing everything that I thought I needed to do to be a good doctor. So I went to college, I went to Stanford University, I went to Yale Medical School, I was getting good grades, I was, you know, had a smile on my face all the time. But a part of me was actually dead. A part of me was not being engaged because I was living, you know, working so hard to do everything I was supposed to that I never bothered to check in with myself and figure out who am I really? And what do I most deeply want? And it was actually for myself through a series of trips and traveling and being outside of the natural habitual situations in which I always was that I started connecting to myself and realizing, you know what, 
there's many things in my life that I'm doing that I don't really want to be doing. And there's many people in my life that I really don't want to be connecting with. I want something a little bit different. And that's when I started to change my life. But some there are some things that you dream about becoming and then maybe you don't become those things and maybe you still dream about being those things but maybe you don't really need to be like whatever it could be you know maybe the most common thing you know when you're a teenager maybe you want to be a rock star but when you're 50 you still want to be a rock star but you don't really need to be one so uh, is that like a false who you really are Right, right. And see, and that's a complicated question because some person might in their heart of hearts from the age of five years old feel like they need to be a rock star. They really want to be a rock star. And other people might feel it as well. And for the first person, it really is part of their soul path. Their greatest form of self-expression in this world will be to be a rock star and create music and share with the world an aspect of talent and ability that nobody else can share. That's their sole purpose. For another person, their desire to be a rock star has nothing to do with sole purpose, but has to do with a desire for fame and notoriety and money and things like that. The first, in the first situation, it's a soul-driven mission. The person feels in their soul that that's what they're meant to do and they go do it. In the second situation, rather than being a soul-driven mission, It's an ego-driven mission. And the things that you get are manifestations of ego. You get fame, you get money, you get power, you get status. But are those really the things that will make you happy? Maybe temporarily, they'll fulfill your ego, but at the end of the day, the ego is actually what could alienate us from our own soul. For some reason, when you were explaining that, I imagined that the ego-driven rock stars are the ones that are most successful. (laughs) (laughs) That might be true because they, you know, and that's the whole thing. Like there's a lot of, a lot of people are ego-driven and ego-driven rock stars will probably appeal to those people. Soul-driven rock stars, they're not doing it for the money or the fame. They're doing it because that's what they're meant to do in this world. They feel it deep within them that they have a purpose that's a bigger purpose and that they need to share their talents, skills, and abilities with the world in just this way. And therefore, they don't care as much necessarily about status and power. And of course, that would be nice if it happens, but it's bigger. It's a bigger purpose for them. Or you have to go with the same allegory, like somebody like Jimi Hendrix who just wants to play guitar and just happens to be so good that he becomes a rock star, whether he likes it or not. Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, the best case scenario. Yeah, but so often it, it's and it's important to ask ourselves, what actions in our lives do we do because of ego-driven motivations for status, power, money, etc.? And You know, not to say we all obviously need money. We live in a world. We need to survive. Status is important. It opens doors in life. It's not to downgrade any of those things, but it's really more to upgrade the importance of connecting to your soul. Have you noticed amongst your patients an increase in in an issue with status because of social media? It's all about status. It's all yes. It's so often about appearances. Um, I've noticed people have pain from that particular issue in ways that they never did before. And it's happening more and more. For instance, um, after a breakup, people incessantly will check on ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends on social media and see them with somebody else, see them having fun, see them appearing to have this perfect life with the perfect smile. And people assume that that's true, that that's indicative of the truth. And it creates a lot of pain in people's lives. And that's why one of the first interventions after somebody has broken up with somebody, if indeed they're serious about the breakup, is actually to, you know, to try not to check their social media, to defriend this person so that they're not in their consciousness to the degree that they could be. And to try to get some of these self-comparisons and the things that social media creates out of the picture to really enable them to heal. When you say to be authentic, is that also in the same realm as having uh, integrity? 
Yes, very much so. I think the two are very much in line. Integrity is when your words match your actions. It's, you know, talking the talk and walking the walk. And authenticity is very much the same. It's being who you really are. It's not saying or doing anything that is not really at the end of the day, your soul would want you to be. So uh, remind me about the second point about the soul. uh, uh... Yeah, the soul corrections. And those are Sigmund Freud referred to concepts of this nature as repetition compulsions. So those are those things that come up up in our lives again and again and again. It's that thing which we have to overcome and is often our greatest source of pain. So it's not like uh, an addiction because the addiction, maybe to an addiction to alcohol is just a an effect of that other thing. Yes, and one form of soul correction is addiction. People have all sorts of soul corrections. And for instance, some people have come into this world to deal with and battle and overcome addictions. And that is addictions to drugs and alcohol, addictions to certain behaviors like video games or sex addictions, or psychological addictions. It's possible to be addicted to things like money, power, status, all those things that we talked about before. And the way that you know that it's an addiction as opposed to a healthy relationship with money, power, and status is that the more of it you have, the emptier you feel. I guess if you have a a lot of integrity and authenticity, it's hard to be addicted. So they cancel each other out, maybe? Yes, they could. They could. But, you know, you can have people that are very authentic people that do everything they can to be true to themselves. But then they have a biological propensity by virtue of, you know, a lot of alcoholism in the family. And so they still have to overcome this. So sometimes authenticity, you know, always it's an antidote to things, but it doesn't always negate things to the degree that a person doesn't have to overcome it at all. Addictions could still very much, you know, be present and be part of someone's soul correction, even if they're living an authentic life. It sounds to me that it would be, maybe it's uh, personal, I don't know, but it sounds to me that it's more difficult to fix this second part because addiction is very hard to get over than maybe just staying true to what you believe. Yes, yes, exactly. Addiction is very multifaceted and there are biological, psychological, emotional, behavioral causes and etiologies to an addictive process. And in order to really overcome an addiction, it's so important to have treatment at all those levels. So, And that being said, addiction, first of all, it's an illness. Second, it's treatable. And third, the opposite of being addicted isn't actually being sober, it's being connected. Often addictions stem from our inability to fill our voids in healthy ways. So there's a deep longing, a deep loneliness within. And learning how to fill those voids in healthier, more constructive ways helps people overcome addictions and move forward with their lives. How do you feel about your profession where you... Well, in your profession, there is a risk to create addiction with certain medicines. Uh, Have you had any soul-searching with that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And... This is actually, on on so many levels, an issue in my profession. There are certain medications that people could use to, for instance, help with anxiety or attention deficit disorder or even pain that, you know, obviously we have in our country a huge opiate epidemic. I don't prescribe opiates in my practice. I'm not a pain management doctor, but it's very much an issue. I do, however, prescribe when medically indicated medications like benzodiazepines and also ADHD medications for certain people. And those drugs could, with you know the right combination of circumstances, lead to addiction. So it's very, very important to be very careful and to monitor patients very closely, to give only limited quantities of those medications, and really just to screen to make sure that 
what if there's a family history of addiction, if there's a past history of addiction, to give people, you know, other options and other tools. So to avoid these medications, why are these medications still prescribed if they are so addictive? Sometimes it's because nothing else works. And I've certainly come to that with patients where we've tried everything and the only thing that works for that particular patient is a medication that happens to be addictive. So it's, um, they're powerful medications, they can change people's lives, but it's so important to monitor them very, very carefully. I can only speak for myself, and I have been classified as having some sort of HD, ADHD. I don't know what kind of level, if it's weak or strong, but uh, but having it myself, I've noticed I've had some issues in my life, but I've usually seen it as, as an advantage, and I'm I was I'm happy I wasn't born today because maybe then somebody would have given me medication, which I've never taken because I managed it anyway. Uh, so I'm wondering if I have this theory, maybe your professional expertise can tell me, but isn't ADHD more a type of personality more than an illness? It's such an interesting question. I see and I kind of understand what you're getting at. And yes, there is definitely something to that because ADHD could be very common in individuals who are visionary, visionaries, individuals who see the forest from the trees, people who are leaders, people who are able to multitask and do 20 things at once because their brain moves so quickly, they can change attention from one thing to another. They're able to, they're usually very quick people. And so absolutely, there are certain personality types that are more likely to have ADHD. Now, at what point then do people come to get medication? So what I see in my practice is oftentimes it's just like you said, it's individuals who come are highly, highly intelligent, talented, visionary individuals who've done very well in life and found many ways to compensate throughout, through school, through everything. And there's tons of compensations, behavioral compensations. Um, there's, you know, through meditation, through all sorts of ways. But they come to a point where the amount that's asked of them and of their minds is too much for them and their capacity to compensate is no longer able to, you know, to work. And so it's like somebody fails their medical boards. Um, someone who's been, you know, really, really good. And it's not for lack of studying. It's because they feel like their brain isn't working at 100% and they don't know what to do about it. And yeah, so I, I see that a lot. And it's in those situations that first we try to figure out, are there ways to do this without medications? And if so, what are those ways? And if not, you know, what can we do to help these people achieve their goals and be the person that they want to be by effectively and in an evidence-based manner treating, you know, their ADHD when obviously when medically indicated? Listening to you speak, I actually realized I did take medication because between the age of 15 and 25, I self-medicated uh, with cannabis because it was the it was the thing that made me be at the same pace as everybody else because I was always I had this issue of go, being very fast and uh, uh, so when I smoked cannabis I felt normal now I don't need it anymore because I've solved it naturally but uh, but I remember when I was a teenager it made me slow down because it was going so fast everything and I was always annoyed at everybody else being so slow. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's very interesting, right? Because cannabis technically is actually a depressant, right? Whereas ADHD medications are the stimulants. But what you're describing, I've certainly seen in my practice as well, that for people with ADHD, some of their compensations are indeed to smoke marijuana for the reason that you are talking about. That certainly is a compensation. You're exactly right. Um, sometimes, so ADHD could be primary or it could be secondary. A when ADHD is secondary, the attention deficit is actually secondary to another process, which is usually an anxiety process. So anxiety could lead to difficulty concentrating. And often that's what will give way. That's what cannabis will often help. If the primary process is the attentional deficit, 
then often a stimulant will help that. I remember when I was a teenager, somebody offered me speed and I said, if I take that, my brain's going to explode because I don't need anything that goes fast. <laughs> yeah. And, and the paradox of it, when you treat ADHD, what people describe, what people who go very fast describe is that their brains actually slow down for the first time. It's really kind of a paradox because you would think a stimulant like speed or, you know, Ritalin or Adderall, that that would actually speed you up. But if you have ADHD, it has the opposite effect. It slows you down. And the way you can think about it is it's like the engine for the brake. It finally makes the brake work effectively. I have a small daughter and she's clearly super hyperactive. And uh, I don't know if it's genetic, but if it is, then she got it from me probably. And I wouldn't want to put her on medication. So what would you advise to make sure she can earlier in life uh, somehow use that as a power instead of a weakness? Absolutely right. And I would try to cater to all of her strengths, recognize what those are. She's probably very fast and very brilliant and letting her express that as needed. And there is also a book written by my colleagues and friends, both of whom are psychiatrists, Richard Brown and Patricia Gerbard. And it's called, I'm getting it right now from my bookshelf. It's called Non-Drug Treatments for ADHD, New Options for Kids, Adults and Clinicians. So this has a ton of ways, whether it is through biofeedback, through meditation, or through supplements, that people, especially children, can start to work with some of these symptoms. So I would invest in that book, and it's the most like comprehensive book on this subject written by Columbia psychiatrists. I also did, I don't know how much value they have, but I did a few... Or psychological tests online just because my wife has said that she believes I'm autistic and I said no I'm not autistic because I've I've seen the movie Rain Man and I'm not like that but uh, the I don't know the, the greatest if you're 50 if you got 50 points you were not autistic if you got 51 you were slightly autistic and if you were like 100 you were Rain Man basically so I got like 52 or something like very low but there was one question that actually answered something in that test that I never understood and that is uh, it I've always had a problem uh, not if there's not with friends but strangers I can I, and when I buy food in the supermarket or people like that I I don't know I don't want to look them in the eyes and that was uh, one of the questions uh, and I never understood why that was. Uh, and I always felt like, oh, they probably think I'm an asshole for ignoring them. But I don't know. I just didn't want to look them in the eyes for some reason, which I can't explain. Which is interesting, which could be for so many different reasons. When you didn't want to look them in the eye, were you aware of that? Or do you feel like it just happened unconsciously? I felt like I was going to see their soul and I didn't want to see it. <laughs> you felt like you were looking too deeply into them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And right. So that could be, it could be a number of things. One is um, social anxiety, which so many people have. And that really is also the cause of shyness. You know, people will be a little bit more to themselves. They won't want to look at people in the eyes. They might want to avoid some social situations in general. That's number one. The other is that there are some people who are empaths. Empaths, are individuals who are very attuned to the energy of others and they absorb others' energies very profoundly. And so looking someone in the eye could indeed be a really, really intense thing. You know, we're one of the only cultures in America where not, you know, European culture as well, but there are many cultures where people don't look each other in the eye. Where actually looking someone in the eye is almost like um, confrontational in a way that you don't look people in the eye out of respect and out of deference precisely because of what you're describing because looking people in the eye is really, really intense. So it's, it's interesting. So the third point, can you remind me and the listeners as well? Yes. Yeah, so the third point um, of fulfillment is connecting to part of something greater than oneself. And I think that of those three, I think most people 
have that because in a, maybe they don't have the other two and that's why they're in trouble. But usually people are patriotic or a football team or religion or there's something they're connecting to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And that could be anything. Like you said, it's interesting that a football team was the first thing that you said. Right. But it's really something that gives them a sense of community and patriotism and a sense of joy to be a part of. For other people, it could be God. It could be the universe. It could be Mother Nature. Whatever it is that gives people that sense of self-transcendence. And from that, there's so much. You know, like if you are somebody who believes in God, there's a lot of theories that there is a spark of the divine within each and every one of us. So God doesn't exist outside of us. God exists within us and within our own souls. So you could know God really through authenticity, by knowing yourself better, by connecting to your own heart. And there's much more. (laughs) One issue I see with this third point is that it's also the cause of many problems in the world because people connect to a big thing and people who are not connected to that thing, they're the enemy. Yes, yes. And that that's very sad. That's extremism, right? And this is the difference between religion and spirituality. In my book, I don't advocate any particular religion. What I do advocate is for people to have a spiritual connection. And for some people... Their religion is their way of having a spiritual connection. But a prerequisite of spirituality is that whatever their way of connecting to part of something greater, whatever their religion or otherwise, that it increase love in their life. Extremist religions often have the opposite agenda. It's about power, control, and domination. It's about hatred and about believing you're better than other people, which are all the antitheses of love. So that's why extremism, you know, having any extremist beliefs, whatever those beliefs are, are unfortunately not, you know, very spiritual and actually quite destructive for society. Of course, I can't know what people listening are feeling, but I imagine that if they want to feel fulfilled, even if they are not connected to a larger thing or a belief or something, I'm sure they they know what they could connect to. And I and if they need to fix their soul or if you know I'm sure they are aware of what addiction they have or whatever issue it is even if they haven't fixed it I'm sure they know what it is so actually it's the first point I think I think most people will find most difficult so where do you start when you want to find out who you are because it's not that that I think that's the most difficult one. Yeah, right. And so in my book, there's a ton of exercises, very concrete ways for people to start to align with these different principles that we talked about today. So one of the key ways to start to cultivate authenticity in one's life is a very simple exercise of asking yourself throughout the day, every day, what do I most deeply want? And what you're doing in asking that, you might have an immediate answer. You might not have an answer for days or weeks. But what you're doing is you're starting to prime your soul to the idea that you could actually have what you most deeply want. Whatever it is, it's available to you and you just have to identify it. And when you say, what do I most deeply want? The first thing that could come into your mind is a burrito or it could be, you know, a... um, a certain kind of smoothie or whatever that is. It could be food. And sometimes when you want food, you indeed want food. But sometimes when you want food, you actually want what food represents. And food is just a metaphor for nurturance and sustenance. And you might be feeling in your life that that might somehow be lacking. I don't know if it's a good idea, but w- would it help to like write down all the things you're you know you don't want oh yes yes (laughs) right because often we could know what we most deeply want by first understanding what we don't want we could know who we are by first understanding who we are not so absolutely so how how is it for you Uh, uh, do you consider yourself as a spiritual person or atheist or scientist yeah so um uh, that's 
also a great question because the first thing that you said, am I a spiritual person, an atheist, or a scientist? And what I argue in my book is that you could actually be all of those together. And atheists, there's many, many spiritual atheists, and a belief in God is by no means a necessary prerequisite for spirituality. So because you can have atheists who feel very connected to nature, to art, and to feeling in the flow, like very much in line with their own souls, interestingly. So I am not an atheist. I personally do believe in God, but I am certainly a scientist and I believe in, you know, everyone's capacity and vision to choose what spirituality means for them. But can you be an atheist and you, you mentioned soul? They don't think there is a soul, uh, I'm sure. I think atheists don't believe in God. I'm not sure if atheists don't necessarily believe in a soul. It's an interesting question. I would be very curious to, because some atheists believe that this is all there is, and the idea of a transcendent soul is foreign or completely not in line with their views. But I wonder if there's also atheists who don't believe in God, but might nevertheless believe that there is more than just the mind, heart, and body, that there is a soul. I'm sure it's different because you're in America, but in uh, where I live in Europe, um, you would probably be good to be quiet about believing in God if you're a scientist. It's, it's. I'm sure there are some, but it's, it's like either you're a scientist or you're not. You know, like that. And you know, and in much of medicine, it's been that way too for a long time. That's actually why I wrote my book because I felt like it was so important to bridge that gap between science and spirituality. And actually, the profession with the greatest number of atheists is actually in medicine, psychiatry, my profession. And psychologists, I think, have even greater rates of atheism than psychiatrists. So this is, you know, what you're saying. By no means is Europe the only place for that. Our, you know, country also very much is the case. You know, that being said, It's been shown over and over that a belief in something greater than oneself, be it God or participation in religion or something spiritual but not religious, actually aids healing in a very deep way. People heal faster, more thoroughly, and more deeply from psychological, physical, and mental illness. It's interesting because the whole world or... I guess the the Western world anyway was religious, and then when science was invented, it kind of killed religious ideas. And then now I have this sense that the deeper the scientists go with quantum theory and all these all these advanced things, they they're going down to these levels where it's almost becoming uh, paranormal again. <laughs> exactly. And that's really what I wrote about in my book. That's exactly right about quantum physics and, you know, wave particle duality and the nature of consciousness and how we used to think that consciousness resides in the brain. But then over time, we realized that the mind is actually so much vaster than the brain and we don't fully inhabit just this materialist universe and that science is only beginning to scratch the surface of some of these discoveries. Are you aware of this? It doesn't have a specific name. Uh, the most common I heard is the witness. So it's not you thinking, but if you're like silent and quiet, it's the voice with deep in you. That's not you, but it's you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yes. And I write about that. The voice of intuition. That is What, that's how I define the voice of the soul. It's that still quiet voice within you that can only be heard when the yelling of your thoughts and the screaming of your emotions temporarily cease. And it's by aligning with that voice and listening to that voice, that's authenticity. That's connecting to your soul. And would you say that that voice, if you make it a person, that's the real you? That comes closest to the real you. Yes, if you're able to listen to that and truly hear what that voice has to say, absolutely. But I also, because I've been thinking about it a lot, and I also find it scary in an attractive way. It's hard to explain. Because it's like, it's this kind of thing of 
staring into the abyss because of this unknown mysterious witness that's there but you know you're still your ego no matter how uh, enlightened you become you're still in this body you know right right yes it, it's so interesting right and that still quiet voice if you truly are listening to it you don't have control over what it says with reason we have a little bit more control we can you know we have retrospective rationalization we have all these rational processes that give us control or at least an illusion of control over our the state of affairs over our life over our mind but intuition is something that when you tap into it, if you truly are tapping into it, what you can learn from your intuition doesn't come from reason, it doesn't come from emotion, it's something much, much deeper, and it could tell you things that might shock you and that you might not want to know or hear. That's another reason it's a little scary in that way, scary and exciting. I don't know if science accepts intuition a lot, but, uh, I mean, officially, but I mean, like, for instance, when you commute and you're taking the subway train a lot, sometimes, you know, I can sit in, on the train reading a book. I, I don't even see the person sit, that sit down next to me. And I just feel like, no, I don't want to sit next to this person. You know, like a feeling. That, that's exactly it. That's, that's intuition, right? Kind of knowing something without really knowing how we know. That it's not fully a rational process. It's just that. It's a feeling, right? And there's... You know, people talk about all the different ways that we can have intuitions. Some people have claircognizance, which is they just know. Some people have clairaudience. They might hear a voice. They might have like a spirit guide directing them. Some people have clairsentience. They might have just a feeling. They know the world by feeling the world. And some people have clairvoyance. They know the world by kind of seeing, by being able to see things and you know, so there's all these different ways in which our intuition works and science is catching up now and doing more and more work on the nature of intuition to better understand how it really functions from a scientific standpoint. Do you do a lot of work with dreams in regards to your patients, asking them about dreams and that? Absolutely, absolutely. I believe, as Sigmund Freud did, that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. And part of my work with patients is to help them make the unconscious conscious and thereby give them more control over patterns in their lives that have been unconscious for so many years. The thing with Freud is that it, maybe that's just my layman knowledge of him, but I, it always seems like it always comes back to, to sex or the mother-father but is it, is it more than that for people who have studied it properly? Yeah, so you know, um, probably the greatest discovery that Freud made wasn't about sexual desires or about mother and father. It was really this idea of the unconscious mind, that there exists within us a force that's very powerful and dictates so much of our actions and behaviors and that we're not fully and consciously aware of that we can't fully subject to reason and rationality, which is why all of us as human beings do things sometimes that we don't really understand why we do them. But there is one interesting aspect which seems to, to, to always be correct uh, when I look around my circle of friends, and that's the fact that it seems like the, the women pick their fathers and the guys pick their mothers when they find a mate. <laughs> that often does happen and or that will happen over and over in a person's life unless number one they had a very good parent and so that relationship works really well or if the parent wasn't necessarily a good fit for them and the relationship doesn't work they do it over and over until they realize the process until they realize what's going on and bring this unconscious pattern into conscious awareness and thereby get much more control over it and make different choices. It's very popular now to say that uh, there's no difference between men and women. Women are women because of how they were brought up. But if, if both men and women were brought up the same, they would behave the same. That's one feminist idea. I argue that there, there, there is different chemicals or how the body is 
setup maybe that makes the women think in different logical terms than men, like different ways of looking at a problem. But would you say there is a difference psychologically when you in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So biologically, psychologically, physically, mentally, males and females are different. And it is on a spectrum. And also, it's, you know, when we think about masculinity and femininity, often we think about, you know, kind of a spectrum on the left side, very masculine, and the right side, very feminine, and everyone's somewhere on that spectrum. But I think it's actually two scales. There's one scale for masculinity, which is very high on one side and very low on the other. And then there's another scale for femininity, which is very high on one side, very low on the other. And everybody fits somewhere on those two scales. So you actually could be very masculine and very feminine. You can have the strengths that males have, which is to be very decisive and action-oriented and ambitious, but at the same time have the strengths that females have. So also be very feminine, meaning that you're sensitive and more emotional and more intuitive. And I'm, of course, using generalizations here, but so just kind of to make the point that masculinity and femininity aren't actually opposites, and they're more collinear axes where you can have people with a lot of both of them. We talked about this witness or this higher intuition before, uh, and I I imagine that to be, you know, genderless. Of course, it's just uh, some sort of consciousness. So, is this femininity, masculinity? Is it just in the physical concept of the self, or you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's in all of that. It's in the physical, the psychological, the mental, the emotional. And part of it is biological. Part of it is the way that we're raised in terms of gender norms. And then superimposed on gender norms is what, you know, your family believed and what your community believed. And whether you were raised by feminists or whether you were raised more in a traditional household with traditional gender roles. And then there's your individual psychology, how intuitive you happen to be, how ambitious you happen to be, how, you know, um, feminine or masculine you happen to be more based just on all of those factors. So if people want to to get your book or maybe, I don't know if you're available to to hire as well, if they need, need, maybe that's more local where you are, but where can they find you? Sure, sure. So um, my um, website is www.annayusum.com, which is A-N-N-A-Y as in yoga, U-S as in Sam, I-M as in Mary. And on my website is my book, but my book fulfilled how the science of spirituality can help you live a happier, more meaningful life is also available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and wherever books are sold online or in person. Great. It was very nice uh, talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Go to AnnaYusim.com to check out Anna's work. And that's Anna, Y-U-S-I-M.com. So I hope that was something to inspire you if you perhaps are not feeling that fulfilled currently in your life. And if you're fulfilled, what are you going to do about it? One thing you could do is go over to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. And there's a link in the program notes as well where you can become a patron and support the podcast. Now let's finish with the song What Comes After Love by Split Vision and Great Grandpa. If you want to check them out, go to splitvisionandgreatgrandpa.com. I'll post additional links at naturalbornalchemist.com and there's links in the program notes as well. Next week we are going to dive into the wonderful world of astrology with the fifth episode recorded at the Altered Conference in Berlin. This little mini-series is about to come to an end. Only a couple more episodes left of that. So, uh, yeah, see you in a week. Enjoy the music, and freedom is in the mind. Wetling up 
Shit. Oh. 